Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. This week we're back with a composer bio for Alexander Skirabin, and we'll be looking into his delightful piano sonata number four. So let's get into it. Alexander Skirabin was born on Christmas Day in 1871 in Moscow. Now note, this date is in reference to the old Russian calendar at the time, and in the quote, new style calendar, he was actually born on January 6th in 1872. Skrabin's mother was a pianist and a bit of a composer in her own right, so you'd think that this is where Skrabin would have learned his first music. But unfortunately, this is not the case. Very soon after Skrabin was born, his mother was diagnosed with tuberculosis and was sent away to Italy to convalesce. Due to the lack of advanced medical knowledge at the time, she could not be saved simply with Italy's fine air, and she did succumb to the disease a year later. But Skarabin wasn't without a motherly figure during his youth. His grandmother and aunt both decided to step in to nurture the child, and they encouraged his creativity. Among his favorite pastimes were creating little puppet plays complete with backdrops and music. And he also apparently had access to a piano, as he was famous for being able to play things by ear. And these weren't just simple melodies. Oh, no, no. He apparently had taught himself the Mendelssohn Venetian Gondola song and several works by Bach. Now, Skirabin's father had been studying law, and most other members of Skirabin's family were in the military, and so little Alexander followed in those footsteps. Starting when he was 10, he was enrolled in the Moscow Cadet School. He was a bit of a sickly and short child, so he didn't excel in many aspects of his training, but was apparently quite good at gymnastics. All during this time at school, Skirabin was also allowed to finally start taking piano lessons, and eventually his preparation paid off, and he elected to leave the cadet school and enroll in the Moscow Conservatory in 1888. While at the conservatory, he became friends with another famous Russian pianist composer, Sergei Rachmaninoff. This would be a lifelong friendship. We've talked about the cutthroat environment of conservatory life in the past, and Skarabin apparently felt that pressure as well. Over one certain summer vacation, he apparently endeavored to practice hard enough to become top of the class. However, as a result of this, he developed an overuse injury in his right hand, and this injury would haunt him for the rest of his life. Scholars have investigated the impact of this injury on his compositions, though, and it is apparent that in his piano works particularly, there's a great deal of complexity that's seen in the left hand, with the right hand being a bit more moderate so as to prevent further aggravation of the pain. Before graduating from the conservatory, Scarabin and his composition teacher Anton Arensky had a falling out and he ceased pursuing a composition degree. He did still, however, graduate from the conservatory with honors as a pianist. Following school life, Scarabin began really ramping up his creative output of works. He wrote several symphonies, solo works from piano, piano concertos, and orchestral tone poems. He also began traveling around Europe, and for some time lived in Switzerland. In his adulthood, Scarabin also became very interested in philosophy and theology. 
He became interested in the thought work of Helena Blavatsky, a Russian spiritualist who co-founded the Theosophical Society. Theosophy was a, quote, pantheistic philosophical religious system that incorporated mysticism, occultism, and meditation with the goal of transcending into a higher spiritual state of being. In Skarabin's personal journals, his devotion to this sort of thinking is evident, and it greatly influenced his personality as well. In one extreme instance, he had written, quote, I am God. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> Many of Skirabin's later composition works, mostly written after 1905, are focused on this sort of philosophy as well. Skirabin began experimenting with harmony that is apparent even in his seemingly inconsequential solo piano works. However, his crowning achievement, that was never actually finished before he died, maybe for the best, was a piece to be titled The Mystery. This piece was meant to be an all-encompassing work for all five senses. Of course, there would be music, a grand symphony with choral accompaniment. The whole world was to gather to hear this great masterpiece called to the foothills of the Himalayas by gigantic bells suspended in the sky. The piece would last for eight days, eat your heart out ring cycle, and each changing of the movement would have changing colors, scents, and textures presented to the audience while the music played around them. Skirabin figured at the end of his all-important work, he would bring upon the earth a sort of apocalypse, thus letting all of humanity transcend into the next plane of existence. So, perhaps it's a good thing he never got to finish it. <laughs> he did, however, get a masterwork that encompassed some of these values out to the public with his tone poem Prometheus, written in 1910. Written into the score is an instrument of Skarabin's creation, the luce, that was essentially a keyboard that would play, quote, light instead of sound. Skarabin apparently had a prototype of this instrument in his apartment, and when he would practice the piano part for the piece, his wife would activate the different colored lights as required in the score. However, Skarabin had a much more grand vision for the lighting effects than just different colored bulbs, and it wasn't something that could be achieved with the technology during his time. There is a lovely recreation of the work on YouTube, however, and we'll provide the video link in the episode description for you, and this attempts to replicate what Skarabin would have envisioned in his mind for the work. So for all this grand thinking and self-importance, whatever became of Skarabin? Well, while on a concert tour in his home country of Russia, he developed a boil on his upper lip. What started as a painful cosmetic annoyance soon became grossly infected, and Skarabin succumbed to septicemia in 1915. So now we shall turn our attention to Skarabin's Piano Sonata Number no. 4. During his life, Skarabin wrote 10 sonatas, and they all gradually show his changing harmonic attitudes. As a young composer, Skarabin was highly influenced by the mid-romantics, particularly Chopin. However, as time moved on, Skarabin began more and more harmonic and stylistic experimentation. This particular sonata, written in 1903, was the first of the sonatas to really begin delving into this experimentation, but it still has definite ties back to the Romantic era. This piece is written in two movements, unlike most other sonatas which usually have three. Skarabin couldn't be bothered with that kind of strict formality. The movements themselves are also performed attaché, 
meaning there is no break between first and second, so a performance basically sounds like one continuous piece. Starting with the first movement, Skirabin lays out a theme that sounds a bit sporadic, leaving the listener to question if it is even a theme. The right and left hands alternate playing or sustaining on different beats of the 6-8 time signature, making the whole thing sound disconnected at first. We have talked a lot in our other discussions about theory about the interval of a perfect fifth, and this is the interval where you have eight half steps between notes, for example, between the notes D and A. And note, these are also the outer notes of a major triad, if that gives you a better example of what we're dealing with. But Skarabin has moved beyond such a basic harmonic structure. Instead, he utilized an augmented fifth, as heard here in this downward leap. We have an interval going from A-sharp to C-double-sharp, meaning we have extended, or augmented, the interval to having nine half-steps between notes instead of eight. Keep in mind, Skarabin has written this sonata in F-sharp major, meaning it has six sharps in it, so the intervals look a little hairy even to begin with. Now, translating these notes into easier terms, the C double sharp is a D. So we're actually looking at D to A-sharp, rather than that perfect interval we'd mentioned, D to A. Once we get past this initial complex introduction, the movement does take on a more traditional romantic feel. We hear lots of chromaticism that make it quite easy for Skarabin to switch key centers at will. For example, after a bit of chromatic mess, we hear a nice upward scale to a common B-flat major chord and arpeggio. Next, we come to a section that has more repetitive running notes in the bass and a melodic line in the treble. This sounds like we've reached the meat of the movement. Now, what's complex about this bit, aside from the harmony, is the rhythm. As we already said, this movement is in 6-8 time, meaning notes are generally grouped into three for a triplet feel. However, Skarabin writes in eighth note quadruples in the bass, meaning he is asking the time of the six beats in the measure to be spread evenly over eight eighth notes instead of six. And to make matters worse, he writes eighth note quintuplets in the treble to be played over those quadruplets. The treble then switches immediately into the expected triplets, but still played over groups of four. It sounds lush, but it is chaos to really comprehend. After this, we hear Skarabin's signature left-hand melody that is accompanied by triplets played by the left hand. And over top, we also hear the right hand hammering away at the quintuplets again. In the score, Skarabin has actually written three different staves to show the two different accompaniments for the two different hands and then the melody played in the middle. 
In spite of the potential cacophony, the first movement has an overall muted and laid-back feel. As we're getting ready to move into the second movement, though, the tone changes a bit. We have B major chords played disparately between several rests. It seems that we are becoming more capricious. Which then moves nicely into the second movement, which is labeled Prestissimo Volando, Fast and Flying, which is now written in a speedy 12-8 time. In the second theme of movement two, Skirabin has slightly more sustained notes than the flying triplets at the beginning. What's fun about this section is the bass line, which you'll have to listen carefully for in this pianissimo section. Under the upper two lines of moving notes, there are sustained dotted halves in the background. The harmonic structure that Skirabin lays out with these notes is downward diminished fourth, or C-sharp to G-double-sharp, up a half-step to A-sharp, up a major third from A-sharp to C-double-sharp, and finally up another half-step to D-sharp. This then repeats in an upward sequence, with the ending of the first and only repetition going down a major third instead of up, and then restarting at the beginning of the pattern again. a very eerie feel. For other examples of this downward diminished fourth in mystical sounding works, we would refer you to Holst's The Planets Suite, the movement entitled Uranus. In this prestissimo movement, Scarabin does utilize the triplet feel of the 12-8th time. We actually do get sections that sound a bit more dance-like and fit closer in with the earlier romantic sound. Skarabin had forgot about the first movement already, not so fast. Even though we've picked up the tempo and are now in quite a kerfuffle of drama, Skarabin actually brings back our original first movement theme. Now for comparison, this is how it sounded the first time we heard it in the first movement. now how it has been transformed. Finally, at the end, Skirabin wants the listener to be blown away by the power of his music. While a good method to do this would be having fast-running arpeggios along the length of the keyboard, a common tactic by virtuosic composers, Skarabin instead hits the listener head-on with loud, quickly repeated chords that subtly change. But having each chord repeated a few times rather than having a single sustained note over the same period still gives the illusion of being extremely complex. Honestly, this looks like the most easily played part of the work.
hope we have helped you reach a higher plane of existence this week, or at the very least, a higher level of understanding about Alexander Skarabin. And if you feel like you have, or want to help us create a classical music apocalypse here at the base of the Himalayas, go ahead and share us with a friend or like-minded family member or colleague. Go ahead and drop us a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Google Play doesn't exist anymore. That's right. Google Podcast doesn't exist anymore, but we're still available wherever fine podcasts are sold. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Scrobin's Piano Sonata No. 4 was performed by Peter Bradley Fulgione. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Find us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Music